Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for Christ, the King. Father, we thank you for the Gospel of Matthew and how he demonstrates and authenticates that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. And Lord, as we continue through this greatest sermon ever of the Sermon on the Mount, Father, we ask that your Spirit would help us to understand the the meaning of this text in context. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord. Um, Lord, help us um, to really humble ourselves before you, Lord, to allow you to speak to us, Lord, that we would hear your voice, that we would allow you uh, to convict us, Lord, that we would... um, Lord, that we would listen and that we would respond um, to your leading. Lord, we're thankful for the work that you've been doing in our lives, in our midst. And Lord, we just pray that you would be honored and glorified uh, through this passage today. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, Father, we do thank you. Uh, We ask you for help now as we work through this passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've we've sort of entered in to the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which goes from chapter 5 all the way through the end of chapter 7, to sort of orientate us where we are, I want to go back to verse 17 of chapter 5. Um, as we come into this section, Jesus as the promised Messiah, there would be questions to his teaching of how does he teach concerning the law. And in verse 17, he says to them, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so we've gone through a series of teachings where Jesus takes an illustration or something that they understood from the Old Testament, um, how they had wrongly interpreted it and applied it, and now he sort of sets them straight on the true meaning. By the time we come to verse 20, what he says is, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I don't have any friends that are scribes and Pharisees, and I don't think that any of you do either. Um, But if we did, this would be, I think in our context, this would be sort of the equivalent of saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of Billy Graham. Uh, See, we all laugh because we all realize that we're in trouble. (laughs) And Billy Graham would say, I'm not righteous at all in his defense. 
So Jesus says, this is the picture of the most righteous person that you or people that you're aware of. They are the standard. And if you want to get into heaven, your righteousness has to exceed theirs. By the end today in verse 48, sort of concluding the section dealing with the law, I possibly, where I still have to work through a lot of this, but in this initial sort of entry, he says, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so throughout this whole series of teachings, what this is doing is Jesus is systematically destroying the security that they felt in their man-made religion. They had taken the law and they had constructed it in a way that sort of made it easy and made them think that they could live up to the standard. And Jesus is showing them how they were were terribly wrong. Uh, John MacArthur says this. I, I liked what he had to say dealing with this section. He says, uh, he compares their system with God's truth. He uses a little code, which is this. You've heard it said, that's their system. But I say to you, and that's God's. He says, yours is here. God's is up here. You think it's enough not to kill. God says, don't even get angry. You think it's enough not to commit adultery. God says you shouldn't even think it in your heart. You think it's enough to do the paperwork when you get a divorce. God says you shouldn't even get a divorce except for fornication. You think it's enough that you put an oath behind your word. God says everything you say should be true, so you don't even need an oath. I have to confess that this passage, these two, you've heard it said in verse 38 and 43, Sort of as a as a confession, um, when I come to the scripture, I want to teach what the scripture says, not what I think or what I feel. But this is one of those passages that 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 in my heart and flesh, I want to sort of push back on. I have a difficult time going through this for two reasons. The first is I believe that this passage over the the, the years in the last hundred years or so, has been misinterpreted, which then leads to false application or wrong application. Um, uh, uh, there are many who, from this passage, who have converted this to a uh, to a system of total pacifism, total um, not to respond in any case. And so, I'm not necessarily pushing back on this text. In my heart, I tend to push back on these interpretations, which I don't think are true to the text. One man who held this system was Bonhoeffer. And by the end, if, if you guys don't know Bonhoeffer, he, you should, he's got, there's a great, he doesn't, he, well, he has a bunch of books out, but there's a new book out, well, new, like five, six years old now. He was a pastor in between World War I and World War II. And he studied in New York. He was from Germany and, and he and during this window is when pacifism just exploded. And so he was a leading scholarly pacifist. And then he was on the last boat back to Germany. And his family was of the, the upper class where they had access to Hitler. And as he watched what Hitler was doing and he saw his theology, he finally concluded not to act, not to do anything, not to help the Jewish people is to act. And so he eventually realized that how he had adjusted things was wrong and that he needed to sort of 
he actually, it's, I don't have time to talk about Bonhoeffer right now, but, but he, he eventually volunteered and plotted to assassinate Hitler as a leading pacifist pastor because he thought, well, there's no better place to, to be able to help these people. And it never, he, it didn't work out. And he was eventually, he eventually lost his life for what he tried to do. Now, on the other side of the coin, the second thing that I have a difficult side with this passage that I have to sort of deal with is um, my heart's kind of wicked. And uh, I like revenge and retaliation. Amen? <laughs> we, we, we got a lot of amens. We got a lot of laughter out there. Um, th- th- there's something within me. I think there's something within all of us that likes justice, but our justice gets manipulated. Uh, I remember thinking back to when I joined the Navy. I joined the Navy for a lot of reasons. I knew I, my dad wasn't going to feed me, and so I needed a paycheck. But, but then there was a side in me that was just angry. angry. And I, I think back to the gunner back then, and I remember deep within me there was something that as I became a SEAL, I just longed for the day when I could exercise wrath on whoever to just utterly destroy somebody's whole life for the evil that they were doing, but, but, but in some ways to sort of recompense me for the, the wrongs I'd suffered in my life. And I know that that's not right. And then I became a Christian and over the course of the years, my, my life, my heart began to change. And I, I kind of remember a, 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 a sort of one of the aha moments in Mongolia with about six missionaries singing, uh, Jesus paid it all, a cappello, which if you know me, it's horrible. I always feel bad for the person who gets my singing on the recording. I had to do it for a little bit. And it's like, that is terrible. Like, it's humiliating. And I fear that it's going to be used against me one day. Um, but I sat there in Mongolia singing, Jesus paid it all. And I put my head down to look more spiritual. But the reason I put my head down is because I was like bawling like a little baby. And, and I didn't hear an audible voice, but I distinctly sort of remember thinking that God was telling me that he's exchanged my anger for tears. And, and I cry, like I cry at funerals, like I People I don't even know, I go to their funerals, I'll start crying. I like see Little House on the Prairie, which Ben did a horrible job last week. I'm like so embarrassed. Like, how do you not know who those people are? I have all seasons. He's going to have to, I'm going to give him a little homework assignment to, to watch through and do a book report on each episode. But, but there's something within me, like this sensitive now that wasn't there before. But in this sensitivity, in this anger that's gone, there's still within me is very much like a what I believe is sort of a righteous sort of shepherd. That if I see somebody in a grocery store yelling or hitting on a kid, I'm going to intervene. If I see a man hitting a woman in the store or yelling, I will, like I don't walk by. I have it within me that I have to get in the middle of it. And so I don't necessarily, I, I think that there's a difference, and I hope that I'm making the point clear. Now, let's just dive into the text before I get in too much trouble here. So we start in verse 38. You've heard it said, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's quoting from Exodus 21. He's quoted a lot from Exodus. He's dealing with the law. Now, we have to be careful. Remember, Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill it. So there is no way in this passage when Jesus is dealing with this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, he is not saying that that was wrong. Our understanding is wrong. Jesus is going to expound over what is happening here. See, now our idea, when we hear eye for eye, tooth for tooth, we think, man, we use that saying as almost like there was a different God in the Old Testament. And so when we hear eye for eye, tooth for tooth, we think of some of the Middle Eastern countries or even Pakistan or places, India, where you steal something, what happens? You get your hand chopped off. And we, when we think eye for eye, tooth for tooth, we think that. Because of this heart of retaliation. The reality is, is eye for eye, tooth for tooth is a beautiful law. It's merciful. It's actually some Latin word of the oldest law that, that we've found historically. I didn't even write it down because I figured there's no sense in me. So what did Ben just say it? Ben said, of course, the scholar back there. I could have written it down too. He's just looking at the commentary. <laughs> he's saying, no, we'll save this for later. I mean, he's right. I mean, it's the oldest law. Lex something, right? Lex something. I forgot the other one. Lex talios, right? And so eye for eye, tooth for tooth, this is beautiful, merciful, a, a way that God ordained a society to, to where people could live amongst each other. Um, it's an instruction for even-handed justice uh, that the, the, the punishment will fit the crime. The punishment cannot exceed the crime. So when we think stealing something and you get your hand cut off, does that punishment fit the crime? The answer is no before anybody, <laughs> like, like I lost my weed whacker. I'm like, I don't think that guy, whoever he is, I pray that he'd find justice, but I don't think he should get his hands lopped off. I think he should repay my weed whacker and maybe a little extra, you know, for the pain and suffering I've lost. Without eye for eye, tooth for tooth written into the law, we would have a society that was out of control. A few weeks ago, we, I read a book, but I really listened to the book. So does that count as reading a book if you listen? I think it counts. I listened to a book about Betty Green, who you guys are like, who's Betty Green? Betty Green was um, a, a missionary that was the, she was the first pilot that formed MAF. And so in the story, fascinating, all of the people that were connected with Betty Green from uh, Dawson Trotman, who's the founder of the Navigators, and they sort of formed this ministry. They were going and they, she starts talking about this guy, Nate Saint, how he was in school and they wanted to really recruit Nate to come fly with them. But he was committed to finishing school first, and they sort of talked about how they had a plane broken down in northern Africa, and on his like summer break, Nate Saint flew out there to fix the plane so they could get it up and running. And they, they bless you. They went into the whole, um, uh, th th like as the book went on, it continued about how Nate was ultimately murdered down in Ecuador. 
And so you start thinking about the tribal people down in Ecuador, the problem. Without eye for eye, tooth for tooth, built into our judicial system, what would happen is, you hurt me. I'm mad that you hurt me, so I murder you. Your brother gets mad at me because I murdered you, so then he comes and he murders me. Well, then I get murdered, my family gets mad, so they go murder your whole family. Now your whole family gets murdered, now your clan is now at war with my clan forever. That's what happens without eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The beauty of God's system, the mercifulness in this. You take somebody's life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, your life is going to be taken. You steal something, you're going to... And it was never... It was never applied literally. You stab somebody's eye out. It was always monetary plus extra. But see, the, the problem is when we go back to Exodus 21, all of this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, everything uh, dealing with how they handle things, if you go through there, you'll see, I read it a few weeks ago, two men are fighting. A, a pregnant lady basically gets in, like she gets bumped over. She goes into labor, the baby's fine, she's okay. There's a punishment. If she dies or the baby dies, it says the husband will determine how he's going to be sort of recompensed for what happened. But then, what it, but then it has to go to the judges. And then the judges will limit. Well, my wife died. I want you killed. I want all of your possessions. I want all of your family dead. And the judge is like, oh, oh, oh. That's, not, that's not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We're sorry that you're, you lost your baby and we're going to find an, a, a, a punishment that matches. But see, the problem is, is that the people during Jesus' time, the scribes and Pharisees, had so taken this that it had departed the judicial system and it was now being applied at an individual level. And so they became very exacting people. You, you, to disown people, to cut off relationships, to identify who you relate. This is what Jesus is dealing with. You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So he's going to give some illustrations. These are all very, it's to the individual. The whole Sermon on the Mount is dealing with the individual. He's not dealing or addressing the, the justice system. And he, like th- things get so out of whack when we start applying Individual principles and instructions to human government. Throughout this, I I keep having dun dun dun. Who knows that tune? Dun dun dun. The People's Court. And I always hear the guys like I I hear I hear the guy at the end. What they say? Don't take the law into your own hands. You take them to court. Kind of like this whole principle. But the problem is the people had started not taking him to court. They had started dealing with it and of their own uh, vengeance. In this contrast, 
Before we go on, if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Really, Romans chapter 12, starting about verse 9, is very Sermon on the Mount-ish. There's a lot of similarities. Uh, I want to skip forward to verse 17. So Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Paul writes, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Circle that, highlight that, mark that, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. But if if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in Paul's writing, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. This whole principle of when evil comes upon you, don't respond in evil. Like, uh, leave room for the wrath of God. Now, if we follow this down to chapter 13, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 4. There's the whole paying your taxes. I hope you guys all paid your taxes. It's biblical. You're honoring God as you pay your taxes with a cheerful attitude, which is a little bit harder to do. <laughs> I'd throw that out there. I, maybe I needed that. I don't know. <clears throat> okay, verse 3. For rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it... That's the authorities that have been pointed over us. It is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, that's the authorities, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it, the authorities, is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And so in an an ideal situation, we don't have enough time to deal with bad governments and all of this other thing. But as we're looking at Romans chapter 12, the Sermon on the Mount, the the thing that creates the ability to live this way is because ideally that there's a government that if evil is done, they handle the justice side on God's behalf. That is a minister of God, a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So, there's a distinction between how the government or authorities act and how individuals act. Um, John MacArthur, I really liked how he handled this passage this week. He says this illustrating these, these two distinctions between the justice system and the individual. MacArthur says this, human relationships and law courts are two distinct categories. There are two distinct operations within each one. For example, we do not want courts to act as human relationships act. We don't want human relationships to act like courts. So if a person commits a crime, we don't want the court to say, oh, I'm sorry that you did this, and I want to be gracious and merciful. You're forgiven. Forget it. Just go out and remember that if you do it again, we'll forgive you again. If you do it again, we'll forgive you again. Seventy times seven. We'll just keep forgiving you. If the courts, 
If the justice system was to act like this, you would have total anarchy. It would be out of control. Go to a country where there's no authority. You guys want to start complaining about the United States government? I'd encourage you to go somewhere that's in the middle of a war. Anybody want to go to Ukraine with me for a little backpacking trip next week? Or I've heard that northern Iraq is beautiful this time of year. We can just, anybody, we'll just grab our backpack and take a couple weeks. See, we don't want to do, we like to visit countries where there is the authorities that take the whole protecting of the people seriously. Because in that umbrella, we can lead peaceful lives. Bruner says this on this passage. This concerns evil done to you, not your neighbor as confrontation is mandated when we see mistreatment of poor and others. The pillar commentary continues, Jesus is referring to private retaliation, not to public order, and he's instructing his followers not to be intent on getting their own back when somebody wrongs them. And so as I read ahead the passage, Jesus illustrates what he's saying through four principles. He gives the slap across the face. If you're being sued, if you're ordered to walk one mile, and then sort of the fourth one, which I think is the general lesson, is sort of um, if somebody asks to borrow from you. So now the first one, it says that if you receive a slap across the, the right cheek, if you're left-handed, this one will, you have to kind of think about this. Anna thinks I messed up. I'm like, no, this is every commentary talks about. It's very obvious. So if you have your right cheek and you're hit across your right cheek in a, in a culture where there, there's only like 4 or 5% of us that are blessed to be left-handers, most everybody else is right-hander. So to get struck on the right side of a cheek by a right-handed person, this is a backhanded slap across the face. In our culture, we call this something that is not appropriate at church. This is an act of insult. None of these things have anything to do with life-threatening situations. This is a backhanded slap with the intent of, of insult. And Jesus says, if you're insulted in this way, you offer up your other cheek and let them slap you again. You're, you're de-escalating the situation. You're allowing the verbal assault to come. He goes on to say, if somebody sues you for your, um, let me read it because there's so many different, if, you, if somebody wants to sue you to take your shirt, let them have your coat also. So in that day, there was like the inner lining of, of uh, like just a shirt, like it says. Somebody sues you and wants to take that from you. You could lose your, you could lose your shirt in a lawsuit. But then he says, give him your coat also. So we need to understand this coat. The coat was, this was the most important possession, really. Not not even just in your clothing. This could very well be your most valuable possession that you own. Because not only was it was your coat, this is what you would sleep in at night on the ground. It could be a pillow. It It was actually forbidden in the law. You could not sue somebody for their coat. There were inalienable rights that you could have your jacket. If somebody was able to present a case where they would win the lawsuit for your coat, they had to return it to you at sunset. So Jesus is saying, if you're going along the way, if you're going there, they want your shirt, give them, their shirt, give them your shirt, and then take off your coat and give it to them. 
This is, this is a willingly surrender of something that was extremely valuable, that if it went to the judge, you would essentially be standing before the judge naked and say, I gave him my shirt because that's what he wanted, but I also gave him my coat. Unheard of. Unheard of. Then he goes on to the whole one mile. If they wanted you to walk one mile, walk two. Now, I just want to point this out. Americans are the only people in the world who use miles, so they're not talking miles here. Um, it's literally 1,000 steps, which I guess somebody said, is a, I've never counted my steps walking a mile. Um, but it's very close to a mile. During this time, the Roman soldiers, at any moment, could order any person to carry a burden for one mile. There, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We see this when Jesus is carrying the cross and he can no longer do it and they ordered, uh, was it Simon the Serene to carry the cross? The Jews hated this law. They despised it that the Romans could order them at any moment to say, hey, I got this bag, you have to carry it for a mile. And so Jesus says, if you're ordered to carry something a mile, when you reach the mile, say, hey, where are you going? I'll take you the rest of the way. I don't mind. This, this attitude, this behavior, says a whole lot about the individual in all of these cases. I, I believe that these illustrations that Jesus gives go back to Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we'll see this again in this passage. Now, peacemaker, we didn't, I dealt with it back then. This isn't about being a pacifist. This is about a person who is actively creating, working towards developing, nurturing peace amongst their relationships. And in all of these cases, you slap me across the face, how do you think I want to respond? If we're going to be honest here, my first inclination isn't going to be like this. I stub my toe when I'm in pain and somebody comes up to me. My inclination is to punch them. And they didn't even do it to me. You slap me across. I mean, you cut me off in your car. You want to sue me? You want to sue me for a frivolous lawsuit? And Jesus said, I want to give you my house. Like, take my house also. You want me to carry this a mile for you? Here, I'll take you the whole way. In every one of these situations, Jesus is cause, calling the person to de-escalate the situation. The ultimate, ultimately creating peace. That the, the, the follower of Christ responds in this way. I've heard it said a bunch of times. The first three I think of this, you know, there's an old saying, if you wrestle with a pig, you both get dirty, but the pig has fun. <laughs> but you don't accomplish anything. All of these things, you get slapped across the face, you could escalate it. And then the fourth lesson, or the fourth illustration, it says, give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away him who wants to borrow from you. And to me, this fourth one sort of is like the picture of that you don't expect much from this world. Somebody wants to borrow money from you. It's not asking you to go into debt to do it. And it's not, if you read the whole script, it's not just indiscriminately. Everybody says, hey, can I borrow five bucks? You've got to give five bucks. 
But I, but I think the attitude is that we hold our possessions open-handed. And we don't expect much from the world and we place our trust in God. And this is sort of when it comes to loaning stuff. When somebody asks you for something, like if you say no, is it because it really is like the wisest choice? Like I don't think it's in the wisest interest to give you, like whatever your kid like screams for or hollers for, I don't think that the best way is to give them whatever, like I don't think that this is what this is saying. But if somebody asks you for something and you would like to help them, but in your heart you're saying, ah, this is my stuff. I don't want to, I got to cling on to my stuff. I think this is what Jesus is saying is just let go, be generous. Trust him to take care of you. And I think the point is, have you received like mercy, blessing, grace from God? The, the, the people who are walking with Christ, the people he's talking to, if you've received this, we're to respond in the same way. And so from this, he goes on to say, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now you'll notice, or you should in your Bible, it should, the, the, the first part of that, it should be in capital letters because it's quoting the Old Testament. The second part should be in regular letters because, well, Jesus is saying that, not, not necessarily from the Old Testament, but what he's doing is he's alluding to or partway quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. Now, as I read this to you, be attentive. Listen for anything that, that deals with your enemy. In Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 18, it says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I see nothing in there about hating your enemy. Look what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate yourself. I mean, hate yourself. Hate your enemy. <laughs> Whoops. So what he's saying is, this is the text. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now he's going on to the, 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 the Levites or the Pharisees and scribes, what their teaching, what their instruction of this passage had become. And, and to, to bring this to light, before I talk about it, I think for us to have a better understanding of what was going on there, I want us to turn to a parable that we all have known. It's all over, the term Good Samaritan. It's used all over the place. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 10, I think Luke chapter 10 addresses what Jesus is saying in this, this uh, second you've heard, uh, you've heard that it was said, it sort of addresses the same issue from a different angle. The same passage is referenced. Now here we go. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to in inherit eternal life? This is a simple question. It seems like a reasonable question. But Luke tells us, that he was putting Jesus to the test. And Jesus, the master teacher he was, instead of just answering his question, 
he responds with a question. And he said to him, that's Jesus saying to the lawyer, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Okay, you're an attorney, you're a scribe, you understand, you're the, you're the master of the law. How, uh, before I answer you, wh- how do you, what do you think that the Bible says about how you inherit eternal life? And he answered, verse 27, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, and your neighbor as yourself. So he quotes from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, this is the key passage for Jews. If you go to Israel or a Jewish person's house, they have the mezuzah on their door. It's this verse that is in the box on the, on the doorpost. And Jesus responds to him saying, hey, man, good job, you got it. That is, that is absolutely the right answer. If the attorney would have just shut his mouth and moved on, everything would have been fine. But looking at verse 29, but wish, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And see, now this gets at the heart of what we're going to look at today from Matthew. We're, we're going to look at this parable to see the attorney asks, now who exactly is my neighbor? Um, I want to go to my notes here. They had narrowed the de- definition of neighbor to a very limited scope thereby vastly opening up the definition of who your enemies are. Your neighbor, it could be like your very immediate family, like your wife and your children. Your in-laws could be out. Your next-door neighbor could be out. It was a very, very limited scope that the scribes and Pharisees taught who your neighbor was. And so this scribe asks, he answers the question correctly. Jesus says, you answer well. And he's like, who exactly? Can you help me understand this term neighbor? He should have stopped. And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest, pretty religious guy, was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So he sees this human being that's totally beaten up on the verge of dying. He's like, ooh, I don't see that. I'm going to get out of here. And when he saw me pass on the other side, verse 32, likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. So you have these two high religious people. They see this beaten guy. They go to the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, a half-breed, half-Jew, half-Gentile, hated, despite hated one another. This is the lowest of the low. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robber's hands? And he, the attorney, said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said, go and do the same. 
So Jesus suddenly, neighbor, suddenly really was broadened. That a Samaritan who they hated, who was their enemy, who they despised, they didn't like, suddenly that guy became a neighbor. And he said, that's your illustration. So we come back to this. And he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I, I, I want to point out, Jesus, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he really opened up who the neighbor was. And I also want to point out, and I don't know that this is my, like, enemy here, I, Jesus isn't talking about ISIS. Like, like, he's not talking about an evil group that's going out slaughtering everybody. Enemy, in their terms, had become, it could be your neighbor who had wronged you. And you're such an exacting person that you haven't spoken to your neighbor in years because you saw them put their dog poop in your trash can and now you're angry with them. Like, this is what Jesus is talking about. He does expand because he goes into persecution. But I, in, in general terms, they had so narrowed who your neighbor was, and it so expanded the qualification for who your enemy was. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I see this. I'm going to skip ahead. To the, I'm going to skip past the love. Don't worry. I'm going to come back to it. But at first glance, what I, when I read, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, I think of Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof. Lord, bless and keep this czar far from us. Is <laughs> That's sort of what I, oh, pray for the, those who are persecuted. Oh, Lord, keep them away. Lord, may you smite them. Lord, may you. I don't think that is what Jesus is getting at here. I, I think first and foremost, if you want to turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first four verses, Paul encourages young Timothy First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. They lived under a ruthless, wicked sort of authority that was over them. And Paul says, you need to pray for them. You need to lift them up. And what's the reason? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So when we come back to Jesus' statement here, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, so I think that the first one that I'll deal with is, is Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute you, your enemies, the people you don't like, the guy who cuts you off in your car. Guy cuts you off, start praying for him. Especially because like nine times a ten, it's probably a Christian. I love it when they cut you off and there's a little Jesus fish, you know, and it's like, ah, that's why I don't wear Jesus. I don't want to have that on my car. <laughs> but this whole loving them, be totally honest. I, I, how do we do this? Why do we do this? I, I think I want us to ponder something. The, the dealing with loving them, 
I think we need to read the rest of the section. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Remember, blessed are the peacemakers. That's the one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's one of the Beatitudes that our actions, he identifies us with sons because I think in that moment of making peace, we are most like God. And he continues in this, pray and love for them so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil, for he causes his son to rise, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I've been thinking about this. If you'll turn with me over to Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, I've been thinking about this in a very, very personal way. I've been a Christian now, I think, coming up on 20 years here. Next year, I think, is my anniversary, somewhere in that window. Before I was a Christian... I wanted nothing to do with Christianity. I wanted nothing to do with Christians. And so Gunner now is a Christian who tucks in his shirt, combs his hair. I don't swear anymore. I I go to church every single Sunday. I even go to Bible studies during the week. I, I do all of the Christian things. It's easy to forget about who I was back then. And so when I read this, love your enemies and pray for them, I think, I don't want to smite them, do away with them, cast down fire from heaven upon them and turn them into grass like the, the apostle of love once prayed. But then I come to Romans chapter five and what I've been thinking about this week, verse nine, much more than having now been justified by his blood, for we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we, 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 you, me, Christian, for if while we were enemies, have you ever thought that you were an enemy of God? We don't think in those terms. While you were an enemy, or while we were enemies, We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So coming back here when I read, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. At one point, that was me. And then the instruction is is that he goes to the illustration of the father who provides sunshine and rain on the just and the unjust. And I start thinking, That was me. My life before Christ, guys, I was angry. I was mad. That might be the same thing. I was bitter. I was a total hooligan. I ditched like a lot of high school if the surf was good. I still don't know if that was wrong or not. Like I'm still like wrestling with that one. I drank and drank starting probably at like 12 or 13. I started hitting the bottle hard. I started getting tattoos. Now, I have to be careful because now that I have kids, when I talk about my tattoos, my tattoos were totally not of the Lord. Like, I, like 
There's, there's in Christian circles. So I'm not saying that you're, if you have tattoos, I'm not saying that your tattoos are evil. I'm speaking solely on my tattoos. The state that I was in when I got tattoos, I was an angry, angry, angry person. I started getting tattoos at 14. I was done by 22 when I became a Christian. And then I kind of stopped. And so now I go places and it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, the pastor's going to go swimming. <laughs> hey, you remember I told you about the tattoos? I'm talking like I have tattoos. <laughs> that was a different life. <laughs> People say, well, have you thought about removing them? I'm like, Absolutely not. Absolutely not because I don't ever want to forget who I was and where I came from. I already have the legalistic side wired in me where I where I see a person like tattoos from their face down. I think, oh, you knucklehead. And then God hits me on the back of the head. He's like, hey, you knucklehead, look at your arm. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's all about grace. And I'm thankful I, I don't know, was involved in an abortion, resisting evading arrest. Wanted nothing to do with God during that window of my life. How did God treat me during that time. And the Bible tells me that before I was even born, Christ died for me, that on the cross, he knew me. That while I was doing that, God was so patient and loving and kind, and I'm so thankful for those people in my life who knew Jesus and didn't give up, nagging me to go to church, nagging me about Jesus. And I think that, that what Jesus is getting at here, he says, love and pray for them. And then he goes to the Father as the example. He says, if you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Matthew was a tax collector, and this is like the perfect week. I have buddies, like my one friend is an attorney. And so through the medium of Facebook, he actually took a picture of the check and let's just say he had uh, something in the memo line that wasn't very appropriate for the IRS. He actually wrote something else and then put one single line through that, which I can't even say what he uh, labeled the IRS as, and then he put the IRS. This Wednesday was tax day, and it was very apparent that there are, we don't need to go on to say about how people feel about tax collectors. And our tax collectors are great guys, seriously, compared to, to then. And Jesus says, these, the scum of the earth, the people that you hate, that if you had a tax collector in your family, you were not bound by law to even tell them the truth. Is don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? A plumber says this, this quote I really liked. Evil for good is devilish. Good for good is human. Good for evil is divine. And then Jesus comes to this last section dealing with the law, and he says, therefore, you are to be perfect. The word is teleos. It's the idea of like maturity, completion, because your heavenly Father is perfect. They all would have understood this. They would have heard Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, which says this, speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. I've been thinking about this. Normally this seems super intimidating, but Deborah, could I ask you to go to the next slide here? <clears throat> Deborah? Hey, could I interrupt the conversation back there, guys? Yeah, thanks. 
Okay. The picture on the right is perfection. I have my trained dog that's kind of looking over at the two of the right and saying, what are you guys doing? And then I have Gideon and I have the new puppy. This little kid is going through a phase right now. It is like, it's really cool, but it's super embarrassing. The kid wants to be just like me. I mean, anybody who's met him, it's pretty obvious he's very much like me. But in, in the last, like, month, so I'm throwing with a dog with a stick. He needs his stick. Now, he's not exactly, his form's pretty, like, not even better than mine, you know? But the kid's just, like, he's trying to mimic me, but he doesn't really have a clue what I'm doing. Last night, I sit down from dinner, and I have chili, and it's like, I'm going to take, I want some chips. I want to crumble the chips on there. Gideon scooches over me, looks at me. He's like, oh, dad's grabbing chips. I'm going to grab chips. Dad's grabbing hot sauce. He's going to put, he wants hot sauce on there. I take a bite. He's, okay, dad's taking a bite. Gideon will never be me. Gideon is Gideon. But he wants so desperately to be like dad. He watches me like a hawk. It's super, like the, I have another picture, Anna texted me for allergies. I started doing the neti pot. She sends a picture. He's in the shower with this neti pot trying to like, <laughs> he so desperately wants to mimic me. And so I don't think verse 48 is saying that we will, this isn't like the Mormon church that we will become God, that nowhere in the Bible does it say that. But I think that the picture here is that our Heavenly Father is perfect. And which, where was it? In the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think that this is the fruit of repentance. And so as we repent, as we're walking with God, we should want to be like the little boy that wants to be like their dad because our father in heaven is perfect. We want to be like him. We will never be perfect. Not until we've done away with this body and we have our new bodies and we're free from sin. But what Jesus is pointing to in this whole first section is that he wants us to long to be like the father. He's our example. How we treat one another, if we're longing to be like him, people who wrong us, well, we wrong God. And a day of justice is coming, but quite frankly, all of us have received a ton of mercy, a ton of grace. And so if we want to be like our Father, if we long to be like our Father, that means that we want to be graceful like Him. We want to be long-suffering like Him. We want to be gracious like Him. We bring absolutely nothing to the table. It's only by His grace and His mercy that we are where we are. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are God. Father, I thank you that you are perfection. We thank you that you are holy. We thank you that you're loving. We thank you that you're graceful. And, Father, as we approach the law as you intended, we realize that we cannot do it. It was never intended 
to get us to heaven. It was to show us our inadequacy. It was to show us our sin. It was to point us to Christ, to fall on your grace. And so, Father, for those in this room who haven't received Christ as Savior, who are uncertain, Lord, I pray that you would help them to place their trust in Christ, that they would have eternal life. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to slip back into the law or into the flesh. Father, that we would long to be like you. We pray that you would cleanse us, Lord, from the sin which so often entangles us. I pray that you would give us a desire to long after you, that we want to be like you, that we would just deeply, deeply desire it. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us on our journey. And that's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.